Domestic abuse, school shootings, mass killings, ethno-political conflict, genocide, terrorism and war. Peace psychology is the study of the mental processes that lead to conflict and how that knowledge can be used in a positive way. In this series, Peace in Mind, we'll be exploring the breadth of peace and conflict psychology. So conflict and peace are, yeah, definitely not to be associated with badness and goodness, evil and good. <laughs> I'm Kim Stewart. And I'm Linda Rose. We're your hosts for this series. Peace in Mind is produced in the studios of 4EB Brisbane with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Today on Peace in Mind, we talk about war, what it does to people and what psychology has to say about it. Yeah, I do have uh, some pretty horrible memories or flashbacks, if you like, of, of what happened to the ch was going on with the children in East Timor and the people in general. Um, these memories sort of haunt me every day and definitely every night, I know that. Well, the night before I flew home, I'd been on an operational patrol in Indian country, you know. Then we flew home and knocked off, went to Sydney, went out in the piss. These two guys come up and ask if they can have a game of pool. Now, this is like six hours off the plane. And I'm like, yeah, no worries. And I said, you know, told them the rules I play, which is two short rules every foul. This guy steps up to me and he says, only poofters and cunts from out of town play two shot rules, mate. Which one are you? For me, the second that he said that, I've gone right back to East Timor looking down the sights of a rifle and a fucking Indonesian Special Forces soldier shitting myself. Right there, right at that minute, prepared to take him out. Like, I don't think that I had the right to beat the shit out of him, and I didn't. But the effect it has on you, you just internalise it all. And you've got to sort of start to tear away from your, your military training, which is react, react, react. A good defence is a good offence. I broke down, it destroyed my life. Um, started going to see counsellors, could not function, could not communicate, didn't leave the house, started doing drugs, could not, started drinking, Jesus Christ. Could, could not function as a person because I was so frustrated. I spent 11 years and four months in the army. I'm trained as a sniper, demolitions expert, mortarman, uh, machine gunner, section commander, platoon sergeant, tracker, um, amphibious warfare expert, parachutist. You know, I mean, I've got more skills than most surgeons in my field. But in, in, in civilian world, I'm qualified to do nothing. You've been listening to a Vietnam veteran describing how the mindset of war has affected his ability to integrate into civilian life. From the Department of Veteran Affairs, Casualties of War. For the peoples of this earth, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold, and are not close. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. 
And we are coming and we will not stop. We will not relent until your country is free. That was former US President George W. Bush and before him Dwight Eisenhower with two very different views on war. War is very hard on people. War destroys the social and interpersonal fabric of communities as well as the physical environment. In the aftermath of war, the population remains armed. The people continue to be maimed and killed by unexploded ordnance, while used and discarded munitions poison the land and water, especially since the advent of depleted uranium. Because the ill effects of war are so devastating, psychologists have been assisting communities not only in recovery from armed conflicts, but in finding ways to avoid war. International relations and organizations have been seen by peacemakers as a source of hope and change in ending or averting wars. Kim talked to Dr. Winifred Lewis, convener of Psychologists for Peace, about work in this area. A lot of what happened with peace psychology um, from the 60s onward has been around international relations. So quite a lot of it has been about developing more effective diplomacy and lots of peace psychologists are involved with training negotiators and diplomats and with the, working with the UN. It's not something that I've worked with myself, but for example, Eleanor Wertheim has been involved um, and other people. So, um, and then there's people like Kelman or uh, Bartal working in Israel, um, trying to you know, bring together uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And obviously that's an intractable and ongoing conflict, but the, that, those are the aims of people working in those areas to try and foster dialogue and, and problem solving that isn't um, kind of locking people into gridlocks of violence and mutual hatred. A lot of the 1960s and 70s folks were just trying to get people to the table. Um, there was ideas about um, graduated and reciprocal initiatives and tension reduction, the GRIT model, which is about, you know, from the threshold of violence and war, how to take a step back, slow steps back, um, alternating, so that you get to a stage where the violence has stopped. And then there was initiatives around bringing people to the table, both groups of experienced diplomats, but also um, you know, young people and young students to try and build. And those ran into problems on at both levels, if you like, the contacts between students um, sometimes found that the larger scale conflicts were just reflected in the smaller group and that people were brought together without increasing understanding. But other times it worked and so that research has then evolved into trying to understand when will positive contact lead to changing social attitudes. And oftentimes it helps a lot if there's a common bond or recognition. So they'll try to bring together, rather than just generic groups now, it might be like musicians um, from both sides because then they can at least share an important part of who they are with each other and that can then be a leverage to try to transform their attitudes. But by no means is there a magic bullet in that area, you know, it's still ongoing. In the area of diplomats and negotiators, part of the problem has been, um, or part of the dynamic has been, that there's political interests on both sides that promote the ongoing conflict. So as a way of dealing with internal conflict within Israel or within Palestine, people need to take a position to promote conflict with the other guys. And that dynamic has been approached both within psychology and political science without overwhelming success yet. <laughs> and then there's kind of issues of understanding the political process as a social psychological process. 
you know, to what extent can a charismatic leader actually change social relations as opposed to being forced into a militarist or belligerent position by um, a society that just isn't ready for peace. So people have been trying to approach that um, on, all the, on all the different levels. The internal politics of societies, the diplomacy and negotiation, and also the kind of social attitudes. And I guess I might add into that the understanding of how you get effective institutions that span across groups. Um, and a lot of people have argued that, you know, the same struggle for social change um, occurs when people are trying to commit themselves to a, a peaceful world and or to wage war through violence and, you know, trying to understand that it can be a desire for positive change that leads people in one direction or another is the foundation for bringing them together, I think. Because usually people are not committed to violence per se or to war per se. They're committed to war because it's necessary for self-defense or because it's necessary for democracy or it's necessary for freedom or it's necessary to bring peace, you know? So there's a kind of higher level where you can agree on the goal and then you can kind of try and debate the means. Um, I think that's really important and interesting. And, you know, if it's not inevitable that we're gonna have war and violence and cruelty, then what next? You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Dr. Eleanor Wertheim works with the UN training diplomats in conflict resolution and mediation. We're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary of a program that I've been involved in at the United Nations. Um, it's for the UN Institute for Training and Research. And what we've been doing is working with UN staff and diplomats from around the world and helping them to develop better processes for negotiation and for mediation. And we call it the fellowship program in peacemaking mm -hmm. and preventive diplomacy. So what we're trying to do is help UN staff and diplomats to think about international conflicts and violent conflicts. And how do you prevent those violent conflicts from happening? How do you help stop them at an early stage? And how do you repair after um, after conflict is over or violent conflicts are over? So what we do is we talk about a number of different processes and we talk about how do you negotiate and sit people down at a at a negotiating table and come up with cooperative problem-solving solutions to the disputes that have been happening, wars that are happening around the world or internal disputes like in the former Yugoslavia or Sierra Leone and so on. And how do you help people to come up, look at what are everybody's needs and how do we come up with creative solutions for addressing everybody's needs? And we talk about it in terms of direct negotiations and also mediation, having a third party come in and help. We also talk about what happens after wars are over to help people reconcile. And that's often a, the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. And one of the reasons I became interested in the field of forgiveness was because we have lots of good strategies for coming up with creative problem-solving solutions to conflicts that people have. But if people are coming with long histories of grievances about what the other side has done to us, it's very hard to sit down and just have a conversation about how can we come up with creative solutions to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. So that's where forgiveness comes in. And so reconciliation processes have happened worldwide and um, with groups, and they do involve having different groups who are in other 
or on other sides of different sides of warring parties, for example, sit down together and listen to each other and hear the grievances, hear each other's side of it. And at some point, one of the most important parts of the process towards reconciliation is being able to listen to the grievances of the other side, because most of the time we think of ourselves as the only ones that were hurt. But often in these processes, both sides had hurts and wounds because there was war and hurts on both sides. But we tend not to see the damage that we've inflicted. Mm. So some of the process is hearing the side, hearing about the hurts, then hearing both sides' grievances and hurts, and then moving towards how can we work towards apology, remorse, and expressing the more remorse for what each side has, has perpetrated. And then moving on from that, looking at how are we going to have a new relationship in the future. And that's where we move towards, from forgiveness towards reconciliation. How are we going to live together again? And the things that caused the conflict and the needs that were unmet on both sides are going to be needing to be addressed in new agreements and new ways forward so that we're not going back to the old relationship. What we're doing is moving towards a new relationship, which is more just and more fair, and we're building trust on both sides so that we can start to trust each other again. It sounds like really important work. Do you think it's been effective? Is it, I think it's tremendously important. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been effective in the sense that we have lots of people that have done the course and they we do follow-ups and we find, do you use the methods that we've been teaching? Um, the people who have been doing reconciliation work, we find out if it's been helping. And yes, the process can be helpful. It can be very, very helpful in many different places, and it has been in many places. And the kind of work that we're doing when we're teaching people these skills or helping them develop these skills uh, has been reported to us by people to be very useful in the work that they do. Mm-hmm. So what we often do is we help people to have a framework to think about conflict situations and to analyze them and then use that to guide the work. So we sort of map the conflict, we map what needs to happen, and we think about what are the components of um, conflict and also of reconciliation, and and people can then use it more thoughtfully in thinking about what are all the different processes that we need. Mm-hmm. So we we've uh, the feedback that we get from people that have gone through a program have been very positive, uh, and the program does have an excellent reputation in the UN. Um, so we get feedback often from staff at the UN about how useful they found it, and. Um, Diplomats also give us feedback that they find it useful. One of the things also about the program um, that's been very helpful is building up a strong network of people throughout the world who have done, completed the program. At this point, we've trained about probably over 650 different staff members mm-hmm. from the UN and diplomats. So there's a whole network of people that have gone through the program and are starting to think about things in the way that we discuss in the program, and that's very, very useful for them to have supporters and colleagues that they can contact and say, you know, this is what's happening, can I have some advice from you? So diplomats can talk to people in the UN and you can, and staff can talk to, pe- to diplomats. So it's also a tremendous networking opportunity, the program that we run. One of the things that we will do in the program is that we will have an opportunity to do a role play over several days of a mediation simulation. And we'll take a actual case somewhere around the world, and we've taken cases from in Africa, from in uh, Eastern Europe, from the Asia-Pacific region, and so on. And so we'll have two participants play mediators, and then we'll have usually a government uh, delegation 
So participants will pay members of the government uh, in that particular uh, country, and then some will play the role of some insurgent group that's in violent conflict with the government. And we'll do this over a series of days, and we'll work through how would you do a mediation process in one of those cases. What we'll come up with is creative solutions for specific elements of the conflict, and then use that to generalize to other sorts of conflicts around the world. So we found that some of the cases that we've worked on have actually been very successful afterwards. We've worked on some for a few years, and, and the cases have resolved very well. And so people have gone out and partly using some of the ideas, they've been able to apply them in their own context or situations in many different former conflict areas. And um, sometimes they just generalize it in areas that they're working themselves. That was Dr. Eleanor Wertheim from La Trobe University in Melbourne. Today on Peace in Mind, we are discussing war. He's black, king of music. Oh, look up on a big sum. Red City, Pomodian DJ Paru. I just travel for the record. Ready to let you know more about life. Oh. Easy, get back to King of Music. Uh, we 
telling truth, not to lies, not to lies. I'm in the hood, praying to go to release refugee. I all of the worst life, worst life, worst life. Every night I just woke up with tears in my eye Can't ask why, man, no family ask why I wake up just wondering and now I just don't know where to come from I just don't even know where I'm standing on You won't even understand if I say I got fear No even trying to trip right here Might tell you that love is the world Don't even trust nobody, man I'm just walking free right now Coming from Congo, what you call no Congolese, man I'm just on the mic, do my thing and I really don't care where I'm from, where I'm gone It's where I put my head on I really don't care what I'm standing on Cause, cause, people are under there I really don't care the voices of fear In my ear, love is a war And you don't know how it goes From the United Struggle Project, Life is a War You can find out more about the project Which gives a voice to displaced people worldwide At unitedstruggleproject.org it would seem as though no event had ever destroyed so much of the precious heritage of mankind. Confused, so many of the clearest intellects or so thoroughly debased what is highest. Even science has lost her dispassionate impartiality. Her deeply embittered votaries are intent upon seizing her weapons to do their share in the battle against the enemy. The anthropologist has to declare his opponent inferior and degenerate. The psychiatrist must diagnose him as mentally deranged. Yet, it is probable that we are affected out of all proportion by the evils of these times. When I speak of disappointment, everybody knows at once what I mean. One need not be a sentimentalist one may realize the biological and physiological necessity of suffering in the economy of human life, and yet, one may condemn the methods and the aims of war, and long for its termination. To be sure, we used to say that wars cannot cease as long as nations live under such varied conditions, as long as they place such different values upon the individual life and as long as the animosities which divide them represent such powerful psychic forces. You've been listening to the words of Sigmund Freud, a founder of modern psychology, from his book Reflections on War and Death. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Some psychologists and peace activists see not only war, but the system that perpetuates it as essentially an irrational endeavour based on violence and counterintuitive to human survival. Kim talked to peace activist with Friends of the Earth Australia, Robin Taubenfeld. Uranium mining is a good example because the process of mining is violent, the legacy of mining is violent, the use of the uranium, though supposedly peaceful in its power aspects, uh, is polluting and can be called violent. The outcome of the waste used in weapons is violent, used in, um, or used in munitions or used in other technologies that can be destructive, can be called violent. And we know we live in a society 
our system is based on desecration, on violence. Our system is based on, in Australia, our lifestyle is based on occupation and desecration. So we haven't rectified the issue of occupy, occupying Aboriginal land. It wasn't my family who did that personally, but we're all living off the occupation of other people's land and we're materially benefiting from the exports that this country is involved in, which are primarily the mining sector, resource sector, which is the desecration of land and the polluting of land and not just destroying that was there, but leaving it toxic for ad infinitum, so destroying our future. And we're based our life on an economic system which isn't based on equality and fairness. So no wonder our system can't deliver happiness for people. And when I say we're self-harming, I think we are self-harming in that we destroy our own ecosystem. Mm. So what other animals destroy their house? I don't know. Maybe there are other animals that do that. I don't know of another animal who destroys its home but humans are destroying our home all the time. And we can't be happy when we're destroying our home. As you know, the state where you live in, Queensland, is involved in um, US, Australia, military exercises every two years. And um, these are some of the world's largest military exercises that take place in some of our most pristine wilderness areas and in our um, supposedly protected seas. Part of the Great Barrier Reef is used for these military exercises. And so this one military exercise brings home the fact that we can't have sustainability without peace. We can't have sustainability while we're practicing warfare. Everything we do to protect environment means nothing if we can't uh, respect and create equality and social justice for people and the planet. So for us, it, peace is a precursor to sustainability. We need sustainability, we need social justice, we need ecological justice uh, to, it's sort of like a chicken in the egg thing, but we definitely, uh, there's no point in reducing our carbon footprint and then going to blow up our neighbor. Uh, peace is a global issue, climate change is a global issue, the nuclear cycle is a global issue, and there's no way we can move forward as a planet unless we involve peace in every aspect of the work we do. In the next episode of Peace in Mind, we look at visions of peace. That's it for this edition of Peace in Mind. Thanks for listening. Peace in Mind is produced for the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Theme and background music by Jandy Rainbow, unisonicascension.com. Series producers Kim Stewart, Linda Rose and Nathan Renault. You can find out more about the topics we cover by going to facebook.com slash peaceinmindproject. <laughs>